You see, moms and dads, moments such as these are teachable moments. You can't put that off to the future. And you can't assign this to others. You certainly don't need a psychologist to assign a scapegoat for your child's behavior. You don't need a counselor or a social worker or a therapist. The reason your child has misbehaved is very simple. It's because they're a sinner <laughs> and they need godly correction. Proverbs 22:15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from them. Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. 75-year-old Chao Zin Zi was just standing there in broad daylight at a San Francisco intersection, waiting for the traffic light to change, when all of a sudden a 39-year-old man named Stephen Jenkins hit her in the face, totally unprovoked. What happened next was equally shocking, for Z grabbed a board that was laying nearby and began pummeling her attacker in the face. She's 75. In fact, when the police arrived, they found Jenkins lying on a stretcher with a bloodied Z standing over him to make sure he didn't get away. Worse yet, the police discovered Jenkins had attacked another 83-year-old man unprovoked earlier in the day, gave him a beating. So what on earth is going on? Every day, it seems as if the news reports get more and more bizarre, and it has rekindled an ancient debate. Are human beings basically good or fundamentally evil? Atheist British doctor Theodore Dalrymple has done a 180 on this question after a lifetime of working in the slums of London and in Africa. He came to the conclusion that evil is something that lurks deep within the human heart. As Pogo says, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Dr. Dalrymple writes, never again will I be tempted to believe in the fundamental goodness of man or that evil is something exceptional or alien to human nature. This is why sending a psychologist to a crime scene is an exercise in futility. Dr. Dalrymple wrote about this in his book, Admirable Evasions, How Psychology Undermines Morality. Now think about that. He argues that many psychological explanations of human behavior are not only ludicrous, they're actually harmful. Why? Because they allow you to evade personal responsibility for your actions. Instead, you can put the blame on a long list of scapegoats, on your parents, on your hormones, on your genes, on your neurochemistry, on your poverty, on your lack of education, 
There's always someone to blame. Rather, the Bible says your problem and my problem is sin. Romans 3.10 says no one is righteous, not even one. So if sin is the problem, what is the answer? The answer is Jesus. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from this solution, there really is no hope for humanity. And when mankind loses hope, confusion reigns. The era of the judges is a perfect example of this truth. The era of the judges began with the death of Joshua, 1400 BC, and it ended with Samuel, the last judge, when he anointed King Saul in 1095 BC. Overall, these 305 years, Israel was marked by chaos, politically, morally, spiritually. Just like today, it was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Confusion reigned, and you can see this degeneration in all three cornerstones of their culture, in their families, in their religion, and in their nation. Today we're going to look at how this corruption and confusion spread, and we're going to start first with their families. In Judges 17.1 we read, Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. And then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. So what's going on here? Well, the first thing you need to be aware of is that the timeline of the book of Judges ends with the death of Samson in chapter 16. So chronologically, the history of Israel and the Jewish people is not continued until 1 Samuel chapter 1. In the book of 1 Samuel, there are actually two more judges who rule, Eli and Samuel, and then we move into the era of the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and so on. Bible scholars believe that the last five chapters of Judges, as well as the whole book of Ruth, detail events that happened earlier in the era of the Judges. In fact, Judges 17 and 18 seem to have happened toward the beginning of the Judges, maybe during the time of Othniel. We know that because the priest Jonathan, who is mentioned in Judges 18.30, is the grandson of Moses. <laughs> and Moses died in 1451 B.C. So, the account of Micah, chapter 17 and 18, is a snapshot of what life was like in Israel during the time of the Judges. Moral boundaries were crumbling. 
Micah steals 1,100 shekels of silver, which was a fortune, steals it from his mom, doesn't even feel guilty about it until he hears his mom declare a curse on the thief. And that alarms Micah. Oh, no, you know, mom is calling down curses. So he confesses his sin, and he seems to come clean. His mom, however, responds in a puzzling manner that causes more harm than good. She seems to go overboard in congratulating him for coming forward. In reality, she misses a teachable moment for her son. She should have challenged him. She should have said something like, Micah, I'm glad to have the silver back, but let's just think about this for a moment. (laughs) You have broken the eighth commandment, thou shall not steal. Even worse than sinning against me, you sinned against God. And you need to own up to your sin. You need to confess it to God and then repent of it by vowing not to do that again. You see, moms and dads, moments such as these are teachable moments. You can't put that off to the future. And you can't assign this to others. You certainly don't need a psychologist to assign a scapegoat for your child's behavior. You don't need a counselor or a social worker or a therapist. The reason your child has misbehaved is very simple. It's because they're a sinner <laughs> and they need godly correction. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from them. Moms and dads, your innocent little girl, I raised five, uh, four of these little beauties. <laughs> Sugar and spice and everything nice. Your little girl needs you to help her take responsibility for her actions. I did something sinful, something wrong. And then you need to challenge her to renounce her sinful behavior, make restitution where that is appropriate. She's taken her brother's toys. She needs to give them back. (laughs) And then assign consequences, the rod of correction that will cause her to reflect on her sinful behavior. Now imagine just for a moment if every mom and dad in America did this. Can you imagine how our schools would improve? (laughs) Half the psychologists, half the social workers, half the principals, half the school resources officers would be out of a job. You could probably lay off half the cops too. Any teacher, administrator, law enforcement officer will tell you it all begins in the home. If a rebellious child is not held responsible for their actions, order collapses and confusion reigns. Verses 1 and 2, Micah's not held responsible for his actions because his mom chooses to simply overlook the offense. Then in verse 3, we see further problems in Micah's family. Mom promises to give all 1,100 shekels to the Lord, but she only ends up giving 200. 
That's lying. Worse yet, it's lying to the Lord. Well, there goes the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Okay, so you have that problem. There's also another one. Mom gives 200 shekels to make an idol of all things. Now that's a violation of the second commandment, which says thou shalt not make any graven image or idol. Why was that commandment given? Because Jesus taught in John 4, 24 that God is spirit and we should worship him in spirit and in truth. He cannot be contained in an idol. Even the best of idols will represent only a small portion of who God is. So let's see now. In verses 1 to 4, we know that at least three of the commandments have been broken. The second, about idols. The eighth, about stealing. The ninth, about lying. Now imagine this scene. You see, the Ten Commandments were given by the Lord to the Israelite people in 1491 B.C. at Mount Sinai. Now, only 100 years later, the Israelites had simply tossed them out the window. Instead, verse 6 says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They wrote their own commandments. The job of every parent is to set boundaries. Boundaries that will not only save their souls, but it will cause them to flourish and become all that God wants for them. All of us. We need accountability, we need responsibility, we need self-control. During the time of the judges, the family in Israel was in trouble. They had forgotten all about the commandments that the Lord had given them, started to make up their own, and when that happens, confusion reigns. Let's move on to the second cornerstone of the culture. That was also very, very shaky, and that's their religion. Verse 5 gives us a glimpse of what is going on. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols, and he installed one of his sons as his priest. Everything that is mentioned in that verse, verse 5, is upside down from what God had commanded. First, Micah had a shrine in his own home, but God had already instructed that the only shrine in the land was to be at Shiloh. There at the tabernacle in Shiloh, the people were to meet with God. Second, Micah made an ephod, but God instructed that there was only be one ephod, and it was to be in the tabernacle at Shiloh. Third, Micah made an idol, but as we've already mentioned, God had instructed them not to make idols, for such an object will lead them away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who reigns in spirit and in truth. Idols were forbidden. And then fourth, Micah installed one of his own sons as a priest. But again, this was something that the Lord had forbidden, for only the Levites were to be priests. Now all of this, it just begs the question, why would you profess allegiance to God and then 
not do what he says. Hey? This was the question that plagued Al Qui. Remember Al Qui, former governor of Minnesota? Died in August at the age of 99 across the nation. Warm, glowing tributes to Al poured in, including a very positive editorial in the Star Tribune. It actually shocked me because strangely absent in all of these tributes was the mention that uh, mention of the fact that Al Qui was a staunch opponent of the gay agenda. After the ELCA Lutherans, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the largest one, after they voted to allow gay pastors in the summer of 2009, Al wrote a public letter to his fellow Lutherans. And he began like this, members, the ELCA has left us. The ELCA has acted contrary to the inspired word of God. And then Al noted that the word of God is supposed to be the source for our beliefs, not our own opinions, not political correctness. He called his, that decision that they made. He said, this is a travesty upon our youth. It will destroy our youth. Boy, was he a prophet. And then he challenged his fellow Lutherans. He said, get out and get out now. That's Alquay. Which again, it begs the question, why would you profess allegiance to God and then not do what he says? Why would you do that? The Bible says, Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in our hearts. We are made in the image of God. God has placed within each of us a sense of divine purpose. Deep within us is a longing for something beyond this world. But we also have a rebellious heart, don't we? A rebellious heart that does not want to submit to a holy God. You know what, folks? We want the kingdom without the king. We want the blessings without the blesser. We want God without submitting to him. The Bible also says that this rebellious spirit, it's going to come to a crescendo at the end of the age. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, it says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, this same sort of thing was also happening with Micah. 
here in the age of the judges. You see, Satan was working, and evil was flourishing, and people were perishing because they believed lies instead of the truth. In fact, we will see in the next chapter, Judges 8, that they actually delighted in wickedness, okay? And that brings us to the third cornerstone of a culture that was teetering. First, their families, the family unit was teetering. Then their religion, how they worship God, that was teetering. And now we see their whole nation is teetering. We see a glimpse of what is going on in Judges 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So what's going on here? You see, God had given a portion of land to each of the tribes. So Dan, the tribe of Dan, was given their portion of the land, but they failed to obey God. They failed to conquer the land that they were given by God, according to Judges 1.34. So they started looking for another piece of land. Maybe there's something easier out there. But before attacking it, they ask Micah's priest to inquire of God to see if God is in this. Now imagine this. You have a fake priest making a fake prayer about a fake inheritance, and he gives a fake answer. Okay, that's what's going on here. So the Danites entice a false priest with pagan idols to go with them, and they end up slaughtering the entire town. And they took their land, and they set up a dynasty of false priests and pagan idols in what would ultimately become a counterfeit house of God. And we have uh, visited the site of Dan's temple several times when we've been over in Israel. Now, sadly, the tribe of Dan, man, did they suffer for their rebellion. If you look in Revelation chapter 7, you see a list of all the tribes except the tribe of Dan. They were excluded they will be excluded from God's protection during the tribulation period. This is ultimately what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. <laughs> you create a generation of narcissists, everybody that just does whatever they want to do. The rebellion that we see in the tribe of Dan foreshadows what we are seeing today. 2 Timothy 3.1 puts it like this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. Do we see any of that going on today? 
That is the very first evil that's mentioned here. People will be lovers of themselves. They will be self-absorbed, unable to see beyond the end of their own nose. Verse 2 adds, people will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. They still have church and they meet, they do the elements and all this. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And then what, what does he say? He says, have nothing to do with them. Verse 13 adds, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, friends, we all know this. All you have to do is watch the nightly news or catch the latest news bulletin to realize that we live in a cesspool of unprecedented evil. But it didn't happen overnight. Little by little, over the last century, we have created a generation of narcissists. It hit me one day 20 years ago. I was walking through uh, the school, uh, attending one of our kids' activities. And all over the school were signs, this is 20 years ago, signs about self-esteem. In fact, once I started looking for them, <laughs> it seemed like they were everywhere. Signs like this, I am proud of myself. I am unique. I am worthy. I am confident. I am important. I am special. I am capable. I am strong. I am beautiful. I am deserving of the best. And as I saw these signs, sign after sign after sign, it hit me that these self-esteem messages are the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. I mean, you could not have it more exact opposite. What does the Bible teach? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It says it leads to death. How about the warnings on pride? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. How about God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. How about the Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yeah. You know that Tim Keller wrote a whole book about this? It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. For you, those of you that don't like books, it's about 30 pages. Okay. Think you can handle that? 30 pages. It's 30 pages of dynamite, actually. 
He calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the path to true Christian joy. You want to be happy in life? (laughs) This would be a good place to start. You know, here's what Tim says. He says, up until the 20th century, up until about 1900, virtually every culture in the world believed that the root cause of evil came not from too low a self-esteem, but from too high a self-esteem. And he says, that's why we have so much crime, why we have so much violence, why we have so much abuse, because people not only, they're they're not thinking of others, are they? This guy that was clobbering a 75-year-old woman at the beginning of the message here, he's he's not thinking of anybody else, he's thinking of himself. You realize that even psychologist Lawrence Slater, writing for the New York Times, hardly a conservative newspaper, she insists that there is absolutely no evidence that low self-esteem is a major problem in our society. She cites three studies showing that people with high self-esteem pose a much greater threat than people with low self-esteem. Today, we can see where this fixation on self-esteem has led us. We have the Kardashians. They popped up on TV one day. I said, who are these people? Sue says, they're the Kardashians. I said, how did they get to be famous? They got to be famous for nothing. (laughs) Except how to market themselves. That's what they're famous for, how to market themselves. We have a long line of criminals who've gotten famous by resisting arrest, by standing up to cops, by protesting. Is the problem low self-esteem or is the problem high self-esteem? You see, someone needs to ask the question, so how is all this self-esteem stuff, how is this working for us? Okay? This is the message that's plastered all over the place. How is this working for us? Suicides? Skyrocketing. Homicides? Skyrocketing. Violence? Off the chart. Drug abuse, record highs. Do you know in the nation of Italy, people are so much in love with themselves, they can't get the younger generation to have babies. No time. I talked to somebody living in Italy, he says, the Italians, they don't have any time for babies. Babies cost money. Babies take time. Why would we want to have a baby? We want to have fun. The birth rate is so low in Italy, get this, and I double-checked this, by 2050, 60% of Italians will have no brothers, no sisters, no cousins, no aunts, no uncles. Their parents dies, they're all alone. Now think about this. In the 1300s, the plague wiped out 80% of Italy. 
in the 21st century, they're doing it to themselves. They just don't have kids. Now, I share this with you to simply underscore that, yes, confusion reigned in the era of the judges and during the reigns of some of the kings and many of the prophets. Throughout history, sin has wrecked havoc in every culture, in every generation, in every people group, but nothing compares to the confusion we see today. Which is why I close with this. Because folks, in the midst of all this, there's good news. Believe it or not, there's good news. I believe with all my heart Jesus is coming. And friends, I'm looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. Here's why I believe that. People say, well, they've been saying this forever, you know, Jesus is coming. You know, this is old news. Over the last hundred years or so, there have been a number of historical events that have occurred that are absolutely unique in history. They have never before happened in history. All of them are signs given in the Bible that the return of Christ is close. The first is the Balfour Declaration, issued by Great Britain in November 2nd, 1917. This is what galvanized the prophecy movement. This was the one time in British history when a majority of their cabinet was evangelical Christians. And they issued the Balfour Declaration because they read the Bible. And they knew the Jews had to get back to the Holy Land. At the time, Britain was the most powerful nation on earth. So when they declared their support for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, people sat up and took notice. It had been 2,000 years since Israel was an independent nation. 2,000 years since the Jews had been in any numbers in the Holy Land. Friends, the dry bones prophesied in Ezekiel 37, Israel coming to life, those bones were starting to rattle in 1917. Then, the second unique sign happened on July 19, 1945. An atomic bomb was exploded in Los Alamos, New Mexico's Revelation 6 through 19, read it. It details the death of half of the world's population, much of it by warfare. This was not possible, this kind of carnage, before the atomic bomb was available to us. For the first time in history, atomic warfare makes this level of death and destruction possible. This was followed by a third unique event. On May 14, 1948, the nation of Israel is reborn. On June 7, 1967, Jerusalem is recaptured by the Jews. We know from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 15, that the Jewish temple has to be rebuilt in the end times. And these events made it possible. Now the dry bones are not just rattling they're starting to assemble. The fourth unique sign 
is the uniting of Europe, which happened with the Treaty of Rome forming the common market March 25th, 1957. These six nations have now become 27 nations in the European Union. For the first time since the Roman Empire, Europe is united as prophesied in Daniel 2.41, many other passages, out of a united Europe, the Antichrist will arise. Had to happen. Unique sign number five is the explosion of technology. Do you realize you can't even get into a football game without having one of these things? Found that out last night. <laughs> I mean, sir, do you have, I mean, they're behind three panes of glass there, you know, and they're saying, do you have a phone? So, well, I, never, I don't have a phone, but my wife who does, thank goodness. So you had to get your tickets on the phone, and they had to, you know, you have to do that. You can't operate today without a phone. Nothing exemplifies the explosion of technology better than the release of the iPhone by Apple June 29th. 2007. The development of the smartphone together with the invention of the internet has demonstrated to all of us that the sky's the limit when it comes to technological breakthroughs. And according to Revelation 13, the Antichrist will be able to control the financial transactions of the entire world for the first time ever. We possess the technology to make that happen. I grew up in a time when there were no credit cards. You know, we had a gas station. No one paid credit cards. Everybody paid cash. Hey, fill her up, Denny. Three bucks would fill it up. <laughs> Boy, those were the good old days, huh? Unique sign number six, the legalization of gay marriage. Happened on June 26, 2015. Do you realize that homosexual behavior has always been among us as human beings, but never, not once, has marriage uh, been declared, uh, that homosexual union been declared be a marriage. That has never happened in history, not once. Numerous Bible passages, such as Romans 1, 2 Timothy 3, there are 10 biblical books that teach on this. Okay? All moral order will collapse at the end of the age, and this is a harbinger of that. The seventh unique sign is the whole world is fixated on globalism. On September 16th, 2015, the UN Secretary General announced 193 nations, that's pretty much everyone, has agreed on 17 global goals. Since then, the World Economic Forum has sharpened these goals into Agenda 2030. You will not, there will be very soon, you will not be able to make a financial transaction that cannot be tracked. When I was a kid, they had no idea how you were spending your money. Now, everybody knows, has access to that. Revelation 13 predicts a global government, global religion, global economy. The COVID crisis demonstrated that people will voluntarily surrender their freedoms to gain what they perceive to be security. So given these seven signs, 
all of which are unique to our age, is why I believe we are living in the age of the Lord's return. And friends, we have to always remember this, because I gave you a lot of bad news today. But you have to know this. Things are not falling apart. They're falling into place. Matthew 24, 33, Jesus gives us this beautiful promise. Even so, when you see all of these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Praise God.